Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in, be sure to check out all of our content that we put out there on the internet. If you're looking at the screen right now, quickfs.net, you already know the deal. Uh, we use this website every single day to look at long-term financial data. If you do sign up, which you definitely should, tell them that you came from Focus Compounding. Uh, first of all, Jeff, mm -hmm. happy new year. This happy is the first episode of 2022. Did right. you have a great holiday? Uh, yeah, that was good. Good, good. Glad to hear it. So in today's podcast, we are going to be, since it is the first podcast, it's like, you know, first day of the new, of the new year, you start to sit back, you start to think, hmm, mm -hmm. how have the past few years of my life been? What should I be doing different? What do I want to plan for, for the future? So I thought, Wow, let's sit down and let's talk about our experience okay. managing capital. All right. So we do run a, an SMA arm and we do mm -hmm. run a fund as well. The SMA started in June of 2018 and then the fund uh, launched Jan 1 of 2020. So we're yeah. starting our third year in the fund, in the which fund, is pretty yeah. crazy to think about. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, going all the way back to 2018 for the managed accounts as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought, you know, we could spend some time really just talking about our experience managing capital, your thoughts on it. Investors reach out all the time um, wanting to get into the business of running capital. Okay. And then really just kind of talk about our strategy as well, illiquidity, how we invest. And I think it would be, um, you know, interesting to just kind of hear your thoughts three years in uh, to the fund. Um, and then of course the managed accounts as well. So um, what are your thoughts on managing capital? Do you have any regrets? Uh, Do you enjoy it? Are you still enjoying turning over as many rocks as possible? Yes. I'm still enjoying that. Yeah. Um, regrets. Sure. There's things that if you knew about ahead of time before you started, uh, you probably wouldn't do. Um, but there's things that have worked out better than I thought too. So yeah, there's additional hurdles and things than you might have thought in the beginning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, what advice would you give to somebody that's looking to get into the investment business? Um, hmm. I get that question a lot. That's hard. It depends on what they want to do. Um, what we do, I think, works for us. Um, but for a lot of people they would rather manage money for a firm that they work at and um, are allocated some amount of money on that, some fund or something given over to run that. And that probably makes more sense for them. I mean, we're on the internet, been doing podcasts and all those things. And so we have this marketing type thing through the fact that we just have people that we know. Um, so that's different. Um, yeah. I mean, for a lot of people, I talk to them about the two sides of the business, the marketing side and the running the money side. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what they want to be doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's, I guess, where our dynamic duo comes in as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, for those, I'm sure everybody does know, cause we've talked about it, but Jeff really focuses a hundred percent of his time on the investing part and coming on the podcast, right. which a lot of times, yeah. most times as in 99% of the time, he doesn't even know what we're going to talk no. about until we fire up the mics. Um, has your investing style changed at all since starting to run outside capital? Um, I'm not sure. That's a good question. I've thought about that. I'm not sure. Uh, maybe there has been some changes uh, 
due to, I mean, maybe some thought more to some of the things that are specific to running money for other people and the difficulties that there are with some uh, investments that they might have from their reaction to those things to how money comes in and out of um, funds and, and managed accounts and things like that, like learning more about that and having a better idea of that. Um, is a little different than um, running money for yourself. So I guess that is true a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe it's a little easier to do less um, value things that might be shorter term and stuff when managing money for others, I guess. I would say those are harder for people to have in their accounts. Yeah, And there's also a difference. The fund isn't aware at all times of everything that's in it. The manager accounts are immediately aware of every little thing that happens in their accounts and all that. Yeah. I understand the transparency that some investors do like, but I do think from the GP's perspective and probably ultimately for the LP's perspective, I actually think, um, you know, like an investor receiving a statement once a month, for example, in the right. fund, I actually think a lot of times it's actually probably better for the investor. No, it's better. Yeah. Well, I mean, actually, like the manager accounts, for instance, they, they depending on the client, they could be checking their stock price more than I ever check the stock price because I'm not checking the stock price every day of the things they own. So Do I'm you, probably aware of it once a week, I'd say. I was reading this the other day, and I'd be interested to hear if other people have more studies on this. Do you know what the average holding period is of an investor nowadays, trader, investor? No. Five and a half months. And I think that's down from like years over the past... 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. I mean, we've talked about that in terms of how much share turnover is higher than it was um, even not that long ago in terms of like, um, you can go back to 80s, 90s. It, for most of that period, it was a lot higher, a lot lower than it is now, even in major stocks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How important do you think it is to have your own style box that you fit within that, you know, like, for example, mm. we always talk about illiquid stocks or overlooked stocks is what we say. And illiquid stocks is a component of being what we right. call an overlooked stock. I don't like the style box thing. I think it's dumb. But I do think that it's helpful to have some way to explain what you do um, that is understood by the people who are investing with you, especially because it helps in the future with them understanding what you're doing. Because I think that's the thing they pick up on the most is when they feel you're deviating from what they expected. But that will always happen. You know, like if, if Buffett was managing money for other people and stuff and he bought Apple, IBM, whatever, that would be a big cause of concern then. Just as in the early period when he started buying more, if his partners had known that he used to be buying Dempster Mill and now he's buying American Express, that would be, oh, what are you doing, you know? Um, so, you know, he, he, with Berkshire, probably did a lot of merger arbitrage that, that wasn't revealed. And a little bit that was because it was really big positions. So that helps not people not seeing it immediately and what's going on. Yeah. So it, it helps to explain to people. And I think then people will stick with you more. You'll attract the right kind of clients. You know, it's like Phil Fisher is talking about attracting the right kind of shareholders as being like you're running one kind of restaurant or another. Um, that's what you want. Companies want to attract the right kind of shareholders and, and money managers want to attract the right kind of clients. And so it helps for them to understand what you're doing. You never want someone to buy into something thinking they're buying a growth or something and it's value. Mm -hmm. um, but there'll always be things that you do that surprise people. And that's hard to explain why uh, you have the level of confidence you doing it as compared to other things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What is it that attracted you to less liquid stocks though? Is it just because 
it's the pond that's less fish in per se. I mean, what is it about it? I mean, I'm just kind of, right. I mean, it's been a great strategy for us and I mean, I know why I enjoy it, but I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on it. So it is, I should say that the really, I only care that they're overlooked. So that generally means lower share turnover and things like that. They could be a big company that's illiquid relative to, for the company, illiquid relative to their size. But that would mean that they're fairly liquid for investors and even small funds and things. So it could be that. That's not a problem. So, you know, a a billion dollar company that doesn't turn its shares over a lot could actually have more um, dollar volume than a hundred million dollar company that actually turns over a lot. I'd rather the billion dollar company that is um, more overlooked than most billion dollar companies and the hundred million that's uh, actually a lot of people following it, you know. Uh, But the overlooked stock thing is because I've always found that you, with a few exceptions at strange parts of the cycle and stuff, overlook stocks is where you find uh, things that make common sense, where you would you can buy for what it would be a good private company valuation type thing. Um, I you know I've only been invested. I mean I've been investing for a long time, but it, the entire period I've been investing has been one of fairly high multiples and things like that. So I only started in the late '90s, so there haven't been a lot of periods of extended years in which very large stocks have been available at prices that would make sense for like an all cash private buyer or something. Uh, in some countries there has been, you know, there, there's sometimes occasionally things in, in Japan and stuff that fit that bill. But, you know, I wasn't investing in the sixties, seventies, eighties, a lot of like Buffett's record, a lot of the period that you read about with Graham, there was larger companies that were available for um very reasonable prices that way so you're usually paying out kind of for growth and expectations like that in the future with larger stocks you're kind of paying a premium i would say um and and i and i've always said like portfolio wise liquidity is something that should be managed from the portfolio's perspective i think that's true whether you're an investor you're a bank you're an insurance company whatever there's nothing wrong with some amount of illiquid assets there if you have a lot of super liquid assets you know, and then also there's a, I, we keep saying liquid with stocks, really it's marketability with stocks. Um, liquidity is really like uh, T bills and things like that is truly liquid. Um, but I, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong. We don't do personal finance advice here, but if someone was asking, what should I do in terms of my portfolio and everything? What I would really say is how much cash should you have not in investments at all? How much debt should you have, you know, in terms of mortgages and things like that? And then that's the first question you answer. And that determines most of what you then can do in investing. And so for a lot of people, uh, individuals, if you're saving some money and stuff, you could put a lot into fairly illiquid things, uh, stocks, as long as you have cash that's never invested on hand and you have manageable, you know, um, monthly payments of things and stuff like that. And that would be the thing I'd focus on uh, rather than trying to have a super liquid portfolio. But even then, illiquid meaning also that like there's opportunities, there's more opportunities there for higher rates of return. Yeah. But certainly for anyone, I would say, you know, I don't know why if you have an investment portfolio of any kind, if you need more than 50% of it to be what you would consider really liquid, like you could sell it tomorrow, um, that's probably shouldn't be an investments. Like investments don't need that level of liquidity that's not really investment money for you then i would say it should be a small portion of that you know if if you have two hundred thousand dollars saved it should not be and i can get to a hundred thousand of it in a couple days because i don't know why you need to pull a hundred thousand dollars out of a investment account that quickly um so thinking in that way 
it might make sense for you to have half of your money in an index fund or in um, big liquid stocks and half of it in overlooked whatever stocks. And the fact that you can't get out of this stock, you know, shouldn't really be a problem that way. Now, it is a problem in terms of you lose some optionality of getting in and out of the stock. But see, we're not that kind of uh, investor anyway. So we're not thinking, oh, we're going to take advantage of trading it that way. I agree that liquidity is a huge advantage for a trader, um, uh, for someone timing their entry and exits a lot. But for longer term investors, if you're investing, I've kind of said, people ask how long term we are and stuff. If you think of us as being similar to the time frame of uh, time horizon of like a private equity, uh, an LBO or something. So maybe they have a theoretical 10 year life of the fund or something, but really their investments are maybe three to seven, something in that range. Like if it goes all well and faster than expected, it might be really quick, three years. It takes a little longer than they expect and stuff. It might be seven. Um, if you're thinking over three to what am I going to do over three to seven years, then getting in or out in a given month is not as important. And so that's why I think it's okay to have that illiquid portion of it, you know. And remember, it's not as illiquid when we're talking about illiquid stocks for individuals or for small funds. We're still not as illiquid, with very rare exceptions, um, as things like private equity, as your house, as most any other kind of investment that you could have alternative investments and things. It's just less liquid than listed securities. Yeah, and less liquid could mean, oh, it takes you a week to a couple weeks to maybe a couple months to unwind a position or build a position. Yeah, for individual investors, when they say an illiquid stock, oh, look how long it'll take me to buy my position, look how long it'll take me to sell my position, um, you'll buy the position faster than you can close on a house, you'll sell faster than you could sell your house. I mean, mm -hmm. you know. Now, what about why not just focused on great companies that are liquid? It's a good question. I don't feel we have any need um, on an individual stock selection level. We do have a need, as always, on a portfolio-based level because we are managing money for other people. Now, in managed accounts, they can take their money in and out on their own. That kind of deals with their own liquidity issues there. Um, and a fund though, you do have to manage that. So just the way that banks, insurance companies and things like that have some liquidity concerns that way we do in a fund that you as an individual would not, we cannot be totally illiquid, um, because people have the right to take out money. Um, so I, I think that we have some level of concern that way. Most professional investors, certainly open-end mutual funds and stuff, have a lot of concern that way. You as an individual investor don't really have any liquidity concerns, so I would be cautious about paying any extra sort of premium. When people say there's an illiquidity discount, well, then that's probably what you want to buy. You know, when they mark a stock down because it's illiquid or mm -hmm. something like that. If you're a long-term holder of something, then you want to own the thing that has the highest uh, returns, the highest yields and things like that, and that would be the thing that's illiquid. I don't have anything against owning big liquid stocks as long as you're not paying a premium for that. I just have a problem where you're paying a premium. So when someone says like, um, like at one time we owned a core processor, if someone says, well, but the other core processors, they're, they're more expensive, but they're still pretty good and you can get in and out of them on any given day. I wouldn't, I just don't think you should pay for that. The, you know, your return is generally going to come long-term from the return of the underlying business to some extent. Um, you know, the longer you hold it, it's more the return of the underlying business, but it's also the price that you pay. And then some other things which are, you know, taxes and fees and any of those sorts of things you have. Uh, for individuals, you know, fees are, they're not paying them. Um, you know, now 
transactions are basically costless to them uh, versus the size of the the purchases and sales they're making. So taxes. And then otherwise, it's just a question of how much the, the price and the underlying business are. And so if you get a better price on something, then you could really increase your returns a lot, as long as you're not doing something dumb, like incurring a lot more taxes. But if anything, you're more likely to have kind of lower taxes, generally in the less liquid thing. I mean, you can have low taxes in a highly liquid thing, too, if you just choose not to churn it. Mm hmm. Something I think is interesting, if you're watching the screen on YouTube right now, we actually talked about this on a podcast that we had to scrap because the audio was a bit messed up. But the transition from active investing to passive investing, everybody listening has heard this, uh, you know, uh, this chat over the past five, 10 years. Um, but this chart right here, which I got from a blog, uh, this chart is showing that over the past five years, equity ETFs issuance has been a net 1.6 trillion. So think passive investing over that same time, mutual fund outflows over the same period, it's been a negative 1.8 trillion. So basically it flows out of active mm -hmm. investing in mutual funds into passive investing in ETFs. Warren Buffett said that when he passes away, majority of his net worth, if not basically like all of it, right? 90 like 90 something, yeah, um, is going to be in index funds, passive investing. So I almost wonder if this shift, you know, in the system from active to passive is only going to strengthen the need to have some sort of active strategy that is different from the market. I would be very curious to see a lot of other investors, their returns, how they correlate to the S&P 500. I do think right. most are just basically long beta. And we've actually, from our fund, because it's cool when you have, you know, one vehicle, you could track this, uh, the correlation to the S&P 500 is actually, it's less than one. And right. it's very much in line with what your long-term returns have been as well. So doing something different than the S&P 500, I just wonder if this shift from active to passive is only just going to sort of exaggerate or make people want to focus on strategies that are just different. Yeah. Um, my guess would be that people will put a lot of their money that would otherwise be in certain kinds of strategies in passive and then some of it in active and more niche things, I would guess that's self-serving because we do more niche things, but I don't, uh, I think part of that issue is that, um, to be fair to the case for passive is that it does make more sense because over the last few decades, um, like mutual funds in the 1960s when they were starting out a lot of them uh, in the first few decades were less uh, were more active they actually held in a they held portfolios that were more different from the index and over time they're more and more similar to the index so like when someone says passively manage money versus actively i would say honestly almost probably about half of the money that's officially active in large um, funds, large mutual funds, is really actually indexed. You know, that may not be the way they think of it, but effectively it's similar to an index. And then maybe about half or so of it is active choices that they're making that are independent of the index. And so skew them away from it. But honestly, a large portion is. So if a fund says it's a $10 billion fund, really it's almost as if you have a $5 billion passive fund and a $5 billion active fund. That, that's kind of the result they end up with, it seems. Um, that's overall for like the whole industry. Some, you know, really kind of hug the index a lot and, and some are very different. But I'd say on average, that's what it's like. And then you also have speculators, traders. 
And that's gotten to be a bigger part of the market, much bigger. So in the 1990s, it got pretty big. Now it's pretty big. In between, it had gone very small. I mean, that's one of the things about why whether the market was efficient and everything is that you were competing primarily with uh, professionals, you know. And now a lot more of the volume is uh, is non-professional, and that it tends to be very non-professional tends to be very speculative. Um, they're direct investments, you know. Non-professional through intermediaries tends to be much more investment oriented. Right. But what they do with their their um, own money, it tends to be a, a bit riskier, Yeah, I would say. So, yeah, maybe active, like say active investing. So active and trying to invest over a period of several years. I don't know if that's 20 or 30 percent of the market or something, but it's probably more like that than anything else. You know, uh, probably you're talking about large por- portions that are totally passive and large portions that are. Um, active but totally speculative. If you take both of those out, then what you'd be left with, you know, in terms of people who would be the only people who'd worry about what a DCF is, you know, um, that I don't know if that's more than twenty percent of the market. Yeah. Why are there larger companies that are less liquid? Like, do you think management even cares about that, or is it the type of management? Maybe they own a big block of stock themselves, so they just don't really care. I mean, what are your thoughts on Usually that? Usually, it's the history of the company. So Berkshire and Blue Chip and Wesco um, were public and fairly illiquid, overlooked, whatever. And those were the companies that, with diversified retailing, some other stuff, um, were the companies that formed the the modern day Berkshire. Um, So through the first part of the 90s for Berkshire, fairly illiquid, even when it first listed. It was OTC before then. So anything that wasn't originally listed that started out OTC is more likely to um, have attracted a shareholder base that holds it for longer. Um, dead shareholders, uh, things held by the state instead. There, were, there was a lot of that at, at things like Berkshire. I mean, not a lot, but it was became a lot. The value of what they held became a lot, obviously. Um, so there's some of that. Previous incarnations of the company that then got changed over time, that's what happened at Berkshire. So you have unusual shareholder bases that way. If the company does not merge, Merging for stock obviously increases liquidity, brings in lots of different shareholders. Shareholders are quick to sell out. If there's never been an attempt to take over the company, so it didn't end up in the hands of arbitragers, um, those sorts of things. So that's the kind of stuff that turns it over a lot. So a lot of insiders, but also a lot of long-term investors who are there for the insiders. Um, historically, this is less. This is not true at all now. But historically, if you go back to the things that were small. Uh, and how they started out, a lot of it was they were regionally distributed. No IPO that was sort of national. So the broker that helped them go, the the investment bank that helped them go public and everything wasn't actually a New York uh, investment bank that did that. And Or shares could be distributed for work that different people did or to early employees in the company. Since the late 90s and stuff, that's all changed. So those kinds of companies are very liquid and stuff. But in the past, that wasn't always the case. So even people who got shares because they were early participants in the company, they were early employees and stuff. It wasn't like what happened with tech and venture capital and stuff in terms of how they cashed out. It wasn't thought of that that's how you did it. So yeah, they they become less liquid. And then of course, companies that buy out shareholders, if you do buybacks, what tends to happen if you do tender offers, especially, but uh, um, 
is you eliminate the shareholders who would leave anyway. You know, it's a love it or leave it policy. So the people who will turn you down are the ones who don't want to give up their stock no matter what. And the people who will accept the offer are the people who are most likely. Because when you do like, you know, reverse Dutch tender and stuff like that, that's kind of how it works. So if you're doing an auction where you're going from, you know, that then the reverse order that way, um, you're basically taking out those people who are willing for a small price to leave, you know. We were talking about Hunter Douglas before. That's an example. They did a series of buyouts over a series of different years and stuff. What can tend to happen then is you dry up liquidity completely because you're left only with outside shareholders who keep refusing to sell out to you. Mm-hmm. You know, the people who would trade the stock wouldn't. Now, they had agreed to deals at times, so they got some arbitrage in there, but the company wasn't big enough. There was a lot of arbitrage. The easiest way to create a lot of liquidity in a company. Uh, not, the, not the easiest, but one of the easiest historically is if there's the perception that's in play, it is a possibility for people to try to arbitrage and stuff. Then you have huge share turnover. You'll never get back to the shareholders who were the original ones. Even if the deal falls apart, that creates a lot of liquidity, spreads it around a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's even like you look at what happened in the beginning of 2021 with these meme stocks as well. We've looked at like the share turnover of like AMC and all those names. Right. So people got out of so those. like a complete shareholder base has changed. Right. So first people got out of those when things fell apart for some of them. I'd say a bunch of them, AMC, Costs, uh, I could think of some others, um, where their business sort of fell, uh, you know, GameStop, where their business sort of fell apart for one reason or another. So they had legitimate large shareholders who were interested in it as a business for a while. They sold out maybe because the credit quality of the business was really bad or they saw things going in a bad direction, societal shifts, whatever. They were willing to get out. You had deep value people in there, right? But those deep value people... Deep that, effing value. Yeah, they have to, they have to <laughs> sell out. They have to sell out when it pops a lot to an unreasonable price. Yeah. Right? So if AMC jumps to a price that's way more expensive than Cinemark and Marcus and other and publicly traded ones in Europe and whatever, then those value people are going to have to sell out even if they like the industry and buy those other things. Mm-hmm. They won't stay in when it's three times the price that they estimated it was worth. And then it ends up in the hands of momentum type people or whatever. So you don't have... Um, firm hands that it ends up in if it if it, in general if a stock is turning over a huge amount there's no firm shareholder base and you can do this by analyzing the shareholder base somewhat uh, it's possible through a variety of different things to find out who the shareholder base is the institutional base if they have 13 f's and things like that you can see any five percent plus shareholder you're going to be able to see if that file if the company files with the sec and so you can get an idea how much is held by insiders how much by funds funds that are kind of long term versus not um, and that does have an effect on it. Like I think I mentioned investors title, right? So one of their investors, not a huge investor, but um, they might be a 10% investor or something. It's not a big position for them as Markel. Well, I don't know if that's just a normal investment for Markel. Uh, Markel happens to be, you know what, the next state over and also involved in insurance, but they just have a portfolio and it's not a huge part of their portfolio. But the thing about the Markel portfolio and the guy who runs it is it's pretty long-term oriented. And so they might buy 10% of a company and then not put it on uh, for sale and not sell it at all in the market, even over uh, five, six, seven years, whatever. I think in their case, it might be eight from the time they bought in to now, and they don't really turn their portfolio. So that locks up that 10% of the stock for that long. Um, you can see the same thing as long as there's not too much flows out from them. They, they have a firm base because he's investing insurance money. So it's different. The float is much more secure. Um, Gabelli, unless their funds have a lot of flows out that would requ- require them to liquidate, can also do the same thing. 
So you can see some things where Gabelli owns a meaningful portion of a company and has kept it. Yeah, and if you own a, a company that the shareholder base is, there's a couple of big blocks held by insiders or there's just a, a couple of big blocks that don't trade in general, the price movements could happen pretty quickly, especially if the stock grows to a certain point where you're starting to get these more passive flows, right? If they're now in an index or in a mutual fund, they just start yeah. to receive those those institutional flows and it's could happen pretty quickly as well. We'll call it like the Gannon triple play, you know, the, the Davis double play. Right. The Gannon triple play is low multiple, <laughs> low market cap, and then less liquidity. And if it all works yeah. out, it all works out pretty in a big way uh, because as the stock gets higher, the liquidity issues just take care of themselves. So this gets to where we're talking about liquidity and marketability and stuff. So again, the I, Gannon triple play. I think they heard it here first. There needs to be a distinction in most people's thinking, whether you're a bank, insurance company, non-financial, individual, whatever, between liquidity and marketability. All right. So for a company, what's liquid? A receivable is liquid. It's going to, unless you're, unless they're cheating you, you're going to get paid within 90 days, let's say, and it could be 30 days, whatever, um, on that receivable. It's going to turn to cash. So it's liquid. Uh, inventory, if it's any good, if it's turning, if your business is performing fine, is going to turn to cash. Uh, T-bills and stuff are going to turn to cash. A one-year uh, note is going to turn to cash. So that's liquidity. Marketability is we own an office building and a prime location. You know, you could probably borrow against that, you know, if you own it outright. Um, you could probably find someone, a broker, to try to shop that around and sell it. That's marketability, right? And even when we talk about LBOs and stuff, if they do an LBO where there's kind of other stuff that comes along with it, other businesses that aren't core and stuff, those are marketable. And that helps them pay down their debt, right? So the, the thing with marketability which is different than liquidity. Marketability is not an inherent characteristic of the asset. And so I don't know if you remember this, uh, talking about this, but you'll talk about like, oh, look at the liquidity of this and does it ever change and stuff. And you know, I'll say, well, here's the thing. If everything goes well with this company, you're going to find it's surprisingly easy to get out. And if it goes badly, you're going to find it's much worse than you ever expected. And that's the marketability thing. It would be the same if it was a junk bond issue. You'd have it and you'd say, oh, how liquid is this? Okay. Well, at the moment at which it's not performing very well, you know, so if you if you have a junk bond, right, and it's long term and, and you buy it and it's it's marginal, it's barely junk, you know, gets a couple upgrades. This thing's very liquid. Now that I've got this investment grade bond that has all these years left on it, whatever, you know, you're going to find it's very marketable. Um, if it performs badly, it's not going to be very marketable. And uh, you're going to suddenly find yourself in a very illiquid security. And of course, the problem is you're going to get a lot of liquidity in something where also there's a good chance you're going to you get it, that. I mean, a lot of marketability in something where it's also liquid. Eventually, you're going to get paid off. It's when you think you might not get paid off that it becomes illiquid. And it's the same thing with stocks. So usually I find that if you're going to be a real long-term investor and you find some company and people say the only reason is that it's not liquid as a stock, but the business is great. It's growing, whatever. You are going to find that if you own that for 10 years or something, you're going to have no trouble at all getting out of it. That thing's going to become more and more liquid over time. Um, it's hard to remember that because when I talk about a stock that I bought, like, you know, in the early 2000s, right? And I say it was a perfectly normal business and whatever was trading at 10 times earnings. And um, it's just average that way. And, and then it has another 10 years that do about the same. But it goes from being a 100, 200, $300 million market cap to a billion or something. Okay. So once it gets to be a billion or whatever, people forget that. 
the fact that it was illiquid in its past is not a concern for anyone. Berkshire was illiquid. If you wanted to buy it in the 70s or the 80s or something, even for a big institution probably in the 90s, there, there were probably days where it didn't trade in the early 90s. No one remembers that if they issue their B shares and they would and they get to the size that they get, it doesn't look illiquid even compared to other big cap stocks. Now, has the perception of illiquidity changed? Was it illiquid for 1970, 1980 yeah. standards or for no, was, 2022 it, standards? No, it was really illiquid. Got it. Yeah, Berkshire was illiquid. Yeah. Yeah. Because of the shareholder base it attracted. Mm-hmm. They weren't flipping it. Mm-hmm. You know, who in the seven, let's say, let's say 80s, it's a little easier, but um, who in the 80s would say, I'm going to buy into Berkshire? And sell out when something happens with it. What would you be? I mean, first of all, it's a conglomerate. It's not in one thing. That'd be easy. You could do it based on insurance stuff. I'm going to get in this insurance market, get out on that one. Maybe rumors that this or that's going to happen. But basically, you're not going to get short-term people involved in it. They would The people who thought it was too expensive and whatever, just ignore it. They aren't looking to, oh, I'm going to buy in and out of it. You know, um, it, I have said before, and it's very true, generally... If you find something where there's like one pure play of that thing in the in, in the uh, publicly traded or whatever, where it's not something that a lot of analysts can cover, you can't put it in an industry group. Two things can happen. One, which is much less common because then why would there only be one of them? But it can happen sometimes. If for any reason that's a hot industry, then it can get a lot of attention. So if you're the only, imagine you were the only pure play software as a service thing or whatever. Now that wouldn't last long because things would go public, but it would suddenly, there'd be a lot of interest to invest in you, even though there's other companies out there, but you can't get your hands on them. So it's the only way to do it. But in general, if you have a smaller subset, uh, sort of industry that people don't know about, and there's not a lot of publicly traded examples, then that will tend to be less liquid than it would otherwise be. So investors title company is not going to fall into that category as much. It's a NASDAQ stock. And there are what, three other pure play ones, let's see, three. Yeah, it, it depends on how you define one of the things. So there's three or four other publicly traded companies that are invested in, in tight that are involved in title insurance. So it's an industry people are aware of and stuff. It's a tiny, tiny speck of an industry compared to the total property and casualty in the US kind of thing. But it is there so that people will at least look at it probably. It's an ASDAQ stock. So if you were buying the other ones, you should at least go, oh, I should look at all the title insurers. Or if you come across the name, you should say, oh, title insurance, I know what that is, right? But if you have something that's totally the only thing that they do, and you kind of don't understand. So when we talk about things like, um, you know, Tandy Leather, uh, Breeze Eastern, when that was a public company, things like that, um, they're in an industry that other people wouldn't know about at all. There's none of the other players are publicly traded, so they could even be a big player in the industry, but they're not publicly traded and stuff. Um as opposed to like say a restaurant company there's lots of little restaurant companies but there are lots of big ones too so it's an area that's covered and they tend to trade kind of have more of the short-term people in them just because they're looking at them as all restaurants Um, banks get that attention too so some community banks are different but we've talked about that a lot of investors big investors don't bet too heavily on one bank they like to um, spread the risk spread it around and to do it almost cyclically and stuff where they rotate they're more interested in banks now, and then in a few years they're less interested. They might say, I like the regional banks, the money center, or whatever, but they basically spread around and stuff. You don't see a lot. Of, it's surprising in some ways because even in categories of five, $10 billion market cap banks with a lot of institutional ownership, you don't see, oh, this is the one bank they own. Like, no one does that. 
even though there is some of these funds, they do own like, you know, one um, uh, internet type company or, or even one software company or whatever. And they're mostly diversified in other stuff. Yeah. So it's really just, I mean, you really do believe that investors, individual investors, their greatest competitive advantage because they're not managing tens, 20, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars is to focus in these pockets of the market where institutions, hedge funds, mutual funds cannot and will not go. Right. Uh, let me put it this way. Um, some of the things that large funds do and stuff you can do and are uh, effective, right? But you don't need to do anything that they have to do that hurts their results. So you don't have to look at your, you don't have to figure how you're doing versus the S&P every month. If you want to look at once, if you want to only calculate on a rolling three-year basis, you can do that. They can't. By three years, they've started to lose clients, right? I mean, they can. They can say it. They can talk about it. They can whatever. But they are aware of their underperformance. You don't have to even calculate it. You don't even have to be aware if you don't want to be. So what kinds of things hurt performance, you know? So we've talked about, like, there could be an illiquidity discount, right? So you can put in, uh, you can buy things that are small. Funds might not be able to do that, so they might avoid it. So some things are avoided just because they're small. You don't have to do that. Some things are avoided just because they're illiquid. You don't have to do that. Some things are rebalanced or sold for purposes of diversification, of matching certain things, of flows, whatever. Honestly, I mean, that could drag a fund's, uh, an investor's returns in a fund down 1% easily, 1.5%. 1 to 2% or something could happen just because of bad decisions from a tax perspective. You don't have to do that. You know, you can only, you can make sure that you only do things in terms of losses and gains that help you match those things off, that you can defer things as long as you can, in some cases, whatever, even without a lot of more advanced tax stuff, you could probably improve. Uh, you, you don't have to be as tax inefficient as a fund, right? Mm -hmm. So there's like a percent there. And I'm saying if you add those things up, they, they can add up to a lot. So you can manage things without, with just a concern on what is my like, after-tax compound result so that means de-emphasizing um things that would hurt you in terms of taxes de-emphasizing things that like liquidity stuff what i'm saying is there's nothing wrong with owning stuff that's liquid i'm just saying paying up for something that's liquid why are you doing that because a lot of times people will apply it as an objective idea the stock is worth less or more because it's it's liquid or not liquid right but to you is there a spot in my portfolio for a liquid stock if yes, if 90% of your portfolio right now is in totally liquid stuff, the answer is yes. And then you just get to capture a better return than others because you haven't, you haven't avoided this just because it's illiquid, you know? Um, the same way that it would be, you know, like I said, on the tax things or whatever, it would be the same sort of things. If your situation is different from their situation, you might have an advantage. So never do something just because um, it's the conventional way of doing it if it's worse off for you. I just think you want to think in terms of your own long-term compound return, which is after tax. Like I keep mentioning the tax stuff, but that's a good example for you personally. Um, and you don't have to do the things that funds have to do. And so sometimes they have to do things that hurt their performance. Like sometimes they may, like I said, basically want half their fund to be kind of more like the index because they don't want to have that tracking error. So they say that's so extreme. So you don't, maybe you don't care about that. You might, but for a lot of investors, that kind of isn't the objective. Um, your objective could be, I want to retire with a certain amount of money and I don't care how I get there, whether there's stocks, bonds, whatever. And so then in your case, you don't have to match at all. So you can be uncorrelated and then that's fine. 
Um, and you can hold things longer if you want to do that. You can hold things that are less liquid and you can definitely hold things that are smaller. You know, the smaller and less liquid for the most part, when we talk with uh, individual investors, even ones with a fairly uh, healthy amount of money to invest, individuals generally are at a huge advantage versus funds, even in really small and really illiquid things. That If you can find something long-term, I will agree that if it's very short-term, that then you have a problem. Yeah. And we're not, I mean, we're talking about buying what we think are very high quality businesses in this pocket of the market that are just less traded. The shares don't turn over as much. So it's not like we're buying crummy businesses. Yeah. Um, the really crummy businesses in the pink sheet type stuff are probably not the least liquid. There are some things that are not liquid that I would be worried about because they've become very dark over time. There's new SEC rules with that and, and whatever, but they, they, there's some problems with insider dealing and uh, lack of disclosure and maybe some weird stuff has happened with the company over time that has changed. Um, there can be issues like that, but there's no pump and dump things that are illiquid. Like they're totally illiquid. I mean, they, mm -hmm. that yeah. wouldn't make sense, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. um, and you're finding these things for yourself. Let's also be very clear about that. Um, obviously the risk would be much greater if someone was pitching these things to you, as someone who had an interest in selling it to you, I'll mark up the stock and sell it to you, which is the way that it worked, you know, whatever, 30 years ago or something on some penny stocks. Um, so if someone called you up and saying, I've got a penny stock to sell you. Yeah. Liquid, illiquid, whatever. That's bad. Um, you, you know, uh, they have all these interests in doing that that can really hurt you, but you're finding these things on your, on your own. Presumably, if you're finding something that is undiscovered and other people have no interest in selling you, has not gone public at any time recently, whatever, um, you don't have a lot of sizzle with it. So you shouldn't have problems that way. You should always be careful about things when there's roadshows, when it's recent to an IPO, when there's different interests for them, whether it's a rights offering or whatever. There's interest in people to sell you this stock, or even there's interest in it from analysts and things because of business they do with the company and whatever. Um, or it could be people who own the stock and and talk about it on message boards and all those sorts of things that do have an interest in, in if not driving up the stock, at least getting to the value that they expect faster, right? Because if they're professional, that, that matters a lot to them. Um, it helps their annualized return. But if you're finding things on your own, you know, th these tend not to be the crummiest businesses. Um, doesn't mean they're good. You have to evaluate everything on its own, you know, but if you can find a really small company that's really illiquid and I mean, so, so some of the differences are, are really meaningful between companies, um, in the same industry based on size. So there'll be categories of things like we talked about with core processors, but it could be food. It could be whatever, uh, entertainment things. There can be stuff like that where the really big ones trade consistently at really premium prices. Mm. And so some of them are much better quality, more diversified than other smaller ones. But sometimes they're not. And when they're not, um, you can sometimes get good assets, you know, assets that are very small, but individually are similar to the good assets in that larger company. And you can get it for a much lower PE multiple. So you're paying a market or below market type PE on a really... Uh, attractive durable industry where all the leaders are trading at 25, 30, 35 times and you're getting something for 15, that, that's very attractive. You know, and like we said, because also if it graduates to a larger category over time, it will tend to then trade in line with them. So you get the permanent expansion. Yeah, we saw that with CSVI. Yeah. And we see it all the time. Something that I always 
tell people, and I really do believe it to be true. And as we get more data on this, we will, um, you know, kind of validate it or, um, you know, say it's not true. But something that I do believe to be true is that every single stock that we invest in, for example, and the portfolio returns that we're going to have both in the manager accounts and in the fund, if the market rips 20% over the next five years, mm-hmm. I don't know if we'll do that. Right. But additionally, if the market falls, you know, 20% over the next five years, I don't think we'll do that either. I think the performance of the portfolio will be pretty much entirely based on how we pick the stocks as opposed to a lot of companies that are larger where Mm -hmm. they've benefited a lot from, you know, this stimulus that's been injected into the market, the fed, low interest rates, et cetera. So I don't know. I'll be curious to see how things play out long-term from like a correlation standpoint and just based on focusing in this, just because of where we are in the world right now. Right. You're going to be more correlated at any assets that you hold to the extent that the buyers and sellers are more correlated. So the market, the greater the correlation among the market participants, the greater the correlation among the assets that may, that are traded in that market. So, uh, a market that has a diversity of the kinds of participants in it is more of a diversifying thing to do, you know, if you buy into it. Um, for you. So that's always the thing that I warn about when people think like this other asset class or something will diversify them. That might be true, but you know, um, if it becomes institutionalized, it won't. Because if all your money is in things that institutions own, the similar institutions all own, then the same dynamics that are driving them in each market will drive that. There's still individual things having to do with that particular market. But if, for instance, it was practice of every mutual fund to put 10 or 20 percent of their portfolio in gold, just as a, you know, that was just considered prudent, then unfortunately what would happen is there'd be greater correlation between gold and equities because the portfolio is 80, 20 of those things. You know, I mean, they might sell one and, and um, buy the other and whatever, but basically your funds would still be tend to be correlated, right? Because they're not doing things individually that are very different from that and the flows in and out of the funds are affecting it. Obviously, if you're in really illiquid stocks, um, then what is the, then or the less liquid, less liquid. Stocks. I like to specify less liquid. Okay. Um, less liquid stocks. Um, <laughs> if you're in less liquid stocks, then the, the flows and the marketability are going to be less dramatic sometimes in terms of determining the returns and the underlying results may be more. Um, there is not most investors, you know, we talked about rotation and things, right? So investors, many institutions will rotate into energy for a portion of the cycle and they weren't in it at all before or relatively less or banks or whatever. They do not rotate from liquid to illiquid and back. That's not really something that they do. So generally you're going to find, and you really will find them, um, the same sorts of people in illiquid, in illiquid stocks and stuff. And you'll find the same sorts in the really liquid stocks. You know the names of the people in the really liquid stocks. You don't in the illiquid. But they are some of the same players that will be in the same sorts of things over and over again. If you find a high-quality company that you know you, you have the same sort of interest in whatever, and it's really obscure, you're going to find the same sorts of people own that. But they're different people from the ones who are owning uh, the big companies, right? So there is really little overlap between people who own the giant banks and people who own the tiniest banks. There's less than you think. Even though, which, you know, because there isn't a lot of people who are moving in and out from, say, you know, let's say middle, you know, like regional bank types of stuff. They're not 
there are some people that you know are selling those and then buying the biggest banks and then whatever but there's not a lot of movement from that in the really small people tend to you'll see it and you see in this podcast people you talk to and whatever a lot of people never invest in really illiquid stuff and a lot of people um only invest in really illiquid stuff not a lot but some like us and focus on that. So they start from a total bias of focusing on one or the other, which does mean that the market's a little different that way. And so the way that that money flows into some funds and stuff doesn't necessarily have the same effect on it. I mean, the easiest way to think about that is, are we in ETFs and stuff? Basically, no. So flows into ETFs are not going to be, you know, having an effect on um, our stocks. And if you look at your portfolio, if you're like the average investor, are your stocks in ETFs? Like all your stocks are in ETFs. So flows into ETFs would matter, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's just a difference that way in terms of the market. And the less the market has an effect on things, then yes, the more, like you're saying, you would see the underlying results sort of drive things, right? Mm-hmm. That's obscured in, in things in which the market forces are very important. Sure. But that's true in all sorts of markets. Um, if you have a great, if you have great assets in some market, they're doing great. Everything's wonderful. But for whatever reason, the people who are able to buy them have a problem, then, um, you will see prices change in that. Right. So that, that's just, it's less common for people to think about it that way. But if you have some security that happens to be, say there's some investment security that's really attractive to banks for some reason, some tax things, some capital requirement thing, whatever. Um, if suddenly banks need cash and there's some sort of panic there, um, then you will actually see those things get cheaper purely for a market reason, which is that there's now like we'd say forced selling or something of it there, you know? And, um, yeah, like I mentioned high yield bonds or something, right? So most people don't, won't buy them. They're just in certain, you know, so so like a more extreme example would be distressed bonds. That's a very specialist sort of thing. So, um, one thing is that let's say the mar- the underlying companies were just as good, you know, that happened to be in distress, but there are more of them for some reason. For market reasons, if there are more distressed companies, even if they are have the same credit profile as uh, distressed companies in the past, but you say instead of 100 of them this year, there'll be 300, uh, distressed bond prices have to go down. And they have to go down for a very simple reason. Uh, people are not going to supply the distressed funds with three times the money. So you just have less money. So you've increased supply without increasing demand. Mm-hmm. You can try, they'll try, they'll go out and say, we can, this is now is a great time. We can raise a big fund and whatever. There'll be a lag though. It won't be possible. And so actually you could see falling prices sometimes just from an increase in supply. And that actually could be a big force in the stock market bigger than people think. Uh, we talked about it a little bit before, but like historically, some things about longer term returns in certain decades and things may have more than we realize to do with, um, so like PE multiples and stuff like that. Yes, they might have to do with interest rates. They might have to do with all these things that people normally talk about. But another possibility is they have to do with supply. The demand's going to change, you know, for the different reasons that we know. But the issue of supply does change. In the 1960s, you know, it would have been normal to issue a bunch of stock and not to buy it back and not to take a lot of companies private. It was the conglomerate era and all that. In the 2000s, after the new regulations and stuff, it became very, and low interest rates, it became very um, popular to take companies private for various reasons, um, to buy back stock, right? 
and not to issue as much stock. There wasn't as much demand in the early periods of a bull market. There's not a lot of demand for it. That can help push up PE multiples because if we cut the number of stocks out there from 5,000 that people could invest into 3,000. Sure, yeah. And they still have about the same amount of retirement savings and all those sorts of things. Then it can drive up the prices that way. So we, I would say we in, in less liquid securities, you are, you're going to be less affected by those forces, um, the market forces. And so then you might see more correlation with the business side of it, you know. And that is, you know, whereas in very large U.S. companies, Dow type things or whatever, some of your turn is, you know, I don't know how much of it, but some of it honestly is just how much do people want to put into equities? Because you're so much of what they put into equities that if they want to take out of equities because they're panicked, you know, even like the COVID thing with COVID, people said that that was people panic about stocks and that it's changes in their DCFs for those stocks and whatever. That's very possible. There is, however, another explanation um, for part of it. Uh, people had stocks. They wanted cash. They can turn stocks into cash. The reason we have some evidence that that's true, that people, uh, in essence, do liquidate uh, because of their own situation. So they were actually scared personally about COVID things and wanting cash out of the early part of the cycle. And then once you said, there's going to be stimulus, there's going to be whatever, you're going to be fine. Then they said, oh, I don't need to liquidate all this stuff. And then it didn't have as much to do with changing their um, valuations in companies. Is when we look at wars and natural disasters and stuff, what tends to happen is there's actually people in um, the country that is affected right? So like in World War One, there's like war scares in certain countries, but not in the US. However, it affected US stocks. And most people would say that's crazy. Why would they do that? If anything, you should put money into the US if you know that there's a the risk of a major war in Europe. But actually, a bunch of Europeans owned US stocks. So if they want to get their hands on cash, it does make sense to sell. And so maybe US stocks went down, not in any panic about US stocks, but simply, they were easily sellable, and some of the market participants, some of the people who held it, who could liquidate it, wanted money. So that's the thing when you're in big stocks, right? Sometimes them going down, we always say it has something to do with the news and whatever. It may, but sometimes it is simply people saying, I need money, I want to liquidate. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's the reverse. Maybe, you know, with all the stimulus stuff that we're talking about, for non-professional investors, it isn't even I'm so excited about stocks, but it's I've got more money than I need. I feel like I can invest in stocks now. Um, and in essence, it's the reverse of, you know, that you're willing to put money out there, take risks, whereas at other points you're willing to sell. And it's not so much the underlying asset. So that's the correlation that we're talking about that isn't as present in illiquid things, right? Mm -hmm. But it is more present in very liquid um, things. It's certainly very present in funds and things like that, you know, that the flows into and out of them are very correlated, um, more so even than results sometimes. So the conclusion is, if you're an individual investor, focus on less liquid stocks for a component of your portfolio. Um, and if you don't want to, but you still want exposure, reach out to Focus Compounding. How about that? Yes. Uh, <laughs> managed accounts can be anybody. Managed accounts can be anybody. If you're a qualified investor, then you, that's the fund. The fund. Yeah.
Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. Make sure you hit the subscribe button wherever you are watching or listening to us. If you're listening on Spotify, they recently added the ability to rate us. Uh, so please, if you could leave us five stars, if you've benefited from anything that we've taught over the years and you want to pay us back, that's the best way to do it. I thank everybody so much for the support and we will see you in the next podcast.